0: Well, thank you, Brendan, for that very kind and well-researched introduction. Um, not, not bad to have found out about the John Locke Prize in Mental Philosophy. I'll give you the briefing on that one later. Um, I want to start with a very complex and ambiguous character, called Winston Churchill. One of his very... You know, he's a very prolific author, as you know but what some people regard as his best book was a five-volume history of the First World War called The World Crisis. One of his colleagues who remains nameless to history said, Winston has written five volumes about himself and called it The World Crisis. (laughs) And there's something in that but it really is a marvellous evocation of the First World War and all that led up to it and so on. But the particular moment I want to start with now is a passage he has right at the beginning in the first few pages of the first volume. Forgive me, I'm going to read you a hundred words or so. In the year eighteen ninety five, I had the privilege as a young officer of being invited to lunch with Sir William Harcourt. William Harcourt was former Chancellor of the Exchequer, a bloke who had almost every senior job in successive Uh, Liberal Ministries uh, under Gladstone. He was one of the sort of fixtures of British public life. In the course of a conversation in which I took, I fear, none too modest to share, and imagine Churchill saying that, I asked a question, what will happen then? My dear Winston, replied the old Victorian statesman, The experiences of a long life have convinced me that nothing ever happens. Since that moment, as it seems to me, nothing has ever ceased happening. The growth of the great antagonisms abroad was accompanied by the progressive aggravation of party strife at home, and so on. Now, I can kind of understand Sir William's point. By 1895, when that conversation took place, Europe was close to what turned out to be the end of a century of peace. Now, it's not that there hadn't been wars. There was a Crimean War. There were the wars of Italian and German unification. There was all sorts of goings-on in the Balkans. And, of course, there were countless colonial wars. But if we think about what happened in that century, really since 1815, there was nothing like the Napoleonic Wars, nothing like World War I or World War II in our own century. Sorry, I'm showing my age. The last century. That is devastating wars that transformed the international order. Uh, transformed the international order in Europe and because Europe was then the centre of the world, transformed the international order globally. And it was easy to imagine, if you were a British statesman like Sir William, it was easy to assume that the international system which had emerged at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, characterised by British strategic primacy, Britain's biggest economy in the world, dominant, um, uh, dominant maritime power and so on, it was easy to imagine that that international system and Britain's place in it would last forever nothing was happening which would disturb the assumptions about Britain's place in the world. Well, you know what I'm going to say next. Of course, he was wrong. Something huge was happening. Something had, in fact, been happening throughout the long life he referred to in his conversation with dear old Winston. Because what was happening in the last decades of the the 19th century was a fundamental shift in the distribution of wealth and power. It changed very radically and very quickly. And it changed actually for a very specific reason. That the economic consequences of the Industrial Revolution, which had powered Britain's economy and given Britain the biggest economy in the world, and therefore laid the foundation for Britain's preponderant role in the international system in the 19th century, had spread to other countries. And the consequences were that a whole lot of other countries had grown much richer and much stronger than they had been. America, most obviously. By 1895 it had already take, overtaken Britain to become the biggest economy in the world. Germany, which is right on Britain's heels, Japan, which was coming out of nowhere, really, in 1870, to produce what turned out to be a remarkable economy. And Russia. One of the things we don't recognise, really, is that of all of the rising powers before the First World War, Russia was, in a sense, the most spectacular of them. At the same time, and partly because those guys were rising, some of the old great powers... Austria, almost about to... Austro-Hungarian Empire, to give it its proper title, almost about to disappear as a great power. France and Britain itself were all being eclipsed. And one very important part of the European balance of power, that is the Ottoman Empire, was about to collapse. And so what you had at that time when Sir William was uh, pontificating in his club with young Winston, nothing ever happens was actually the whole foundation of the international system upon which the world depended upon which Britain depended on which Australia depended was, was, was being shaken by an earthquake which was moving the, 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 the you know, the economic foundations of the strategic order uh, upon which the whole thing depended that invalidated all the old assumptions about how the world works that drove the growth of the great antagonisms, to which Churchill replied. And those great antagonisms, the antagonisms between, well, if we go through the whole history of the outbreak of the First World War, but the antagonism between Britain and Germany, of course, but the antagonism between Germany and Russia, the antagonism between Austria and Russia, and so on, France and Germany, of course, all of that uh, drove, these in, those antagonisms were driven as the great powers of Europe, and soon-to-be America and Japan, jostled for their place in the new global order, the new international order, which was going to arise as a result of the collapse of the old one because the foundations, the economic and strategic foundations, had been undermined by this very rapid shift and fundamental shift in the distribution of wealth and power between the, the biggest players. And how that all worked out was really the history, at least the strategic and political history, of the 20th century. World War One, of course, very obviously. World War Two, very obviously. Actually, the Cold War, too, very obviously. You know, Russia's growth in the decades before the First World War laid the foundations for the e- remarkable economy, not fashionable to say, the remarkable economy that Stalin actually built with all of those five-year plans we make jokes about, built the economy, that produced the forces that destroyed the Wehrmacht and won the Second World War. It's an uncomfortable thing to remember, particularly at this stage in international history. So Churchill was right, and he was actually pressing it. He wrote, he wrote that 100 years ago. He wrote that in 1922, published in 1923. But he was right. Nothing stopped happening. The whole of the 20th century, you can, and this is, I don't think, an artificial academics construct, The whole of the strategic political international history of the 20th century can be, I shouldn't say solely, but primarily read as a working out of the fundamental shifts that were taking place while poor old Sir William was sitting in his club thinking that nothing was happening. And indeed, it was already starting to happen while that conversation took place. One of the seminal moments in the collapse of the old European order was uh, Kaiser Wilhelm's sacking of Bismarck, because Bismarck had been one of the great architects of that order and practitioners of of its conduct. He was sacked in 1890. And three years later, in 1898, the German first naval law was passed, which was the beginning of the naval competition between Germany and Britain, which was such a significant factor in driving those countries towards the First World War. And, of course, we know where that led. We know where it led for Europe as a whole, unimaginable tragedy. I mean, literally unimaginable tragedy. I don't think we can imagine what it would be like now to to go through what happened in the First World War. Uh, But also, extraordinary for Britain, you could say that the power that Sir William took for granted in 1895 was really destroyed by the First World War. And for Australia, because Australia's place in the world, place in Asia, depended on British power. British power never recovered from 1914. And, of course, that really came home to roost for us in 1941, in December 1941 where the collapse of British power was finally unambiguously, irrevocably clarified. uh, And we had to do something else. Now, I thought about all of this. I dragged my copy of volume one of The World's Crisis off the shelf. Uh, Last week, partly because I was thinking about what I was gonna say to you guys, but also because I read something that Anthony Albanese said in an interview to my old uh, friend and scar- sparring partner Greg Sheridan in the Australian newspaper. He, Greg asked him a question about the alliance with the United States. And Albanese said, We made our decision, our decision to align with the United States, in 1941. That was the right decision then, and the US is the right partner now. Now, I want to pause just for a minute and think about the decision in 1941 before I go back and say a bit more about what Mr Albanese said. And I want to pause and consider that decision a bit, not because I don't think it was the right decision in 1941. I think it was. But to think about the circumstances under what made it the right decision. And I'm going to do that In what one might call a spirit of relentless unsentimentality and I don't think relentless unsentimentality is inappropriate for considering that decision because it is worth bearing in mind that when Albanese refers to the decision in 1941 we know what he's talking about he's talking about Curtin's famous statement that we look to America free of any pangs whatsoever as to our traditional links and kinship. The decision made in 1941 was a very unsentimental one. And why was it right? Well, we know the answer. Because America was the beneficiary of uh, the successor because of that shift in the fundamental shift in the distribution of wealth and power that Sir William had managed to overlook to Britain's place as the primary power in East Asia. America had the power and the resolve that Britain lacked to defeat Japan. And just to be clear, I don't criticise Britain for that. If I'd been been Churchill in 1941, I would have made exactly the same decision he did because he was a British Prime Minister after all, not the Australian Prime Minister. But Britain didn't have the power and the resolve that we depended on but we continued to depend on, I think, very negligently through the darkening days of the 1930s, which people today so often, including our political leaders, so often compare to the circumstances now. And, and so when we faced that crisis of 1941, we went with the power that we thought had the capacity and the resolve to do what we needed to push Japan back, hold it at bay, and eventually defeat it. And what's more, that was decision not just right in 1941, but, but I think, um, Brendan kindly mentioned this introduction, i spent a lot of my career working on the US alliance. I've, you know, put my arms in the US alliance up to here. And I thought then, and I still think now, that the US alliance has worked very well for Australia. Not all the time and, you know, a few bad days in the office. Vietnam wasn't great. But but overall, I think the American alliance has worked very well for Australia because America has continued to be by far the strongest power in Asia, committed to maintaining a position of primacy in Asia, capable of maintaining that position of primacy, and indeed to maintain it so absolutely that nobody dared to challenge it. So for most of that time, since 1945, and in a slightly different way since 1972 with the opening of China, US primacy in East Asia has been essentially uncontested. And that has been the foundation of the peaceful region that we've, a bit like Sir William, learned to take for granted. Uh, From quick glance around the audience. For most of our lifetimes for most of the lifetimes of most of us. Um, and all of the lifetimes of quite a few of us. Um, I'm glad to see. Um, so the question is, is that still true? Because to me, the very clear implication of those words from Matt Albanese that I quoted from Sheridan we made our decision in 1941 and there's no reason to revisit it, is that nothing's happened, nothing's changed since 1941. Well, and the implication is we can consider rely on America as we always have uh, and that um, therefore there's no reason to revisit that decision. And that No further argument or analysis is required to explore the foundations of Australian strategic policy at a time when, it's worth noting, these guys themselves say we're facing the worst strategic circumstances since the 1930s. Well, of course, I mean, you know what I'm going to say next. A little bit like poor old Sir William. It seems that our political leaders, and I've picked on the the current Prime Minister at the moment, but he's far from the worst. And like I mentioned, some of his predecessors. But they've missed something, just as Sir William did. They've missed another, even bigger, even faster shift in the distribution of wealth and power than the one that Sir William missed in 1895. And actually, for the same reason. What happened in the late 19th century is that the astonishing increases in per capita productivity, which were the essential foundation of the Industrial Revolution, which had spread from Britain to America and Germany and Japan and Russia in the late 19th century, and suddenly given them big industrial economies too, after a long pause, century pause almost, the Chinese got the habit. They, what, what's happened in China, what we call the rise of China, what's happened since 1980, has been China's Industrial Revolution. That is perfectly simple, perfectly simple in outline, un, unimaginably complex in detail, that vast numbers of the Chinese population have moved from semi-subsistence farming or, or literally handcraft manufacturing, you know, making shoes by hand or whatever, to an industrial um, uh, mode of production in which their production, the amount of value they produce each day, multiplies 10 times, and then 10 times again, and then 10 times again. And that's how you grow an economy like that. And so what, what I think we're missing, what I think our political leaders are missing, is that the economic foundations of the strategic primacy, which is the strategic foundation of the order in Asia in which we have depended for so long, have shifted not just in a sort of, oh, isn't that interesting kind of episodic way. Something really fundamental has happened here. And that um, has undermined, is undermining, the international order we have grown to rely on, based on American power, just as surely as the rise of all those other great powers that I mentioned earlier undermined the strategic order that Sir William relied on so confidently. And this creates, this means that we are going to see a new international order in Asia. Uh, Well, a new international order globally and the new international order in Asia in particular, because that's where the the big rises in per capita productivity have occurred. And it's worth bearing in mind that it's not just China. And I'll come back to this. It's India, of course, a decade or two behind and doing things a bit differently, as India tends to do. But, But it'll get there in its own way. And also, Potentially, and I'm just talking about the great powers here. I'm not ignoring Vietnam or all of the others, but also Indonesia. You know, on on all the sort of standard predictions, and who am I to disagree with them, well before the middle of this century, Indonesia will have the fourth biggest economy in the world. The order you know, the the ranking will run China, India, the United States, Indonesia. Now, this is a whole separate subject, which I won't spend any time on, but suffice to say that what kind of what Indonesia does with that power is a, is a real mystery, because although it's easy to look at China and India and see these are countries who see themselves as great powers and, and conceive themselves in that term and have got a pretty clear idea what they want to do with it, it's hard to look at Indonesia today. Indonesia under Sukarno was a different proposition, but it's hard to look at Indonesia today and see it using the economic weight that it has turning it into the strategic weight of a great power. But I don't think we can assume it won't happen, it's just a bit of a mystery as to what it will look like. But bottom line there, we are seeing not just one rising power in Asia, nor one rising great power in Asia, but two or three. So that's a bit, that is like the complexity and therefore the difficulty of what we saw in Europe in the years before 1914, with lots of rising powers and therefore lots of relatively declining powers as well. Japan, of course, most obviously, in the Asian context. Not that Japan's in decline, it's just relatively in decline because China's getting away from it. So are Indonesia and, and India. So all of this creates a whole lot of new facts which are fundamental to the way Australia conceives its place in Asia, conceives its place in the world and it raises very big questions about the choice of 1940, whether the choice we made in 1941 is still the right choice. Because it's worth being crystal clear about this, it is the policy of successive Australian governments that our approach to the strategic upheavals that we're seeing in Asia today is to follow America. It's to adopt America's aims, and to bet on America's success. And that is a very significant choice that we've made, and a choice that I think we've made partly on sentimental grounds. We haven't been free of any pangs about our traditional links. uh, And I think also because we've been lazy because it's been easy to assume that what's worked in the past is going to work in the future. And sometimes that's not bad policy, by the way, but it's, it's, it's a dumb policy when the stakes are so high and the bad outcomes are so dangerous. And I think, you know, as a country, we have been in denial about this. We have been a bit like Sir William. Of course, we've recognised the shift in economic weight, I don't need to lecture a West Australian audience about that and and we've talked a lot about it in Australia but we've ignored the strategic consequences we've ignored the implications for regional and global order Uh, we've somehow pretended that China could rise economically the way it has and start consuming you know a million and a bit tons of West Australia's iron ore a day without changing the way the international order in Asia works. And I do just want to recall to you just how big this is. Um, How fast and how far the distribution of wealth and power that we acknowledge as an economic fact, but overlook as a strategic fact is. And a million different sets of statistics, but the, the one I most struck me most forcefully, most recently, was published without comment in the table of a rather minor document produced by DFAT about our trade relationship with India. But it included a graph of, with projections from the Australian Treasury of the relative size of different economies over the next uh, couple of decades. And the estimate was that by 2035, which is a day after tomorrow in strategic terms, in PPP terms, purchasing power parity, so factoring out the uh, differences in exchange rate uh, and so on. The Chinese economy in 2035 will be 24 percent of global GDP and the American economy will be 14 percent, 24 to 14. And just to be clear, PPP is what counts from the strategic point of view. For some other purposes, I'm prepared to buy that market exchange rates tell you something that PPP doesn't, but from my, in my business, it's what, what matters is, what can you do with the dough? And that's what PPP tells you. Now, some people approaching, including some people in, in and around government, approaching this fact, still cling to the idea that this is just somehow a temporary aberration and that the whole China thing is just going to fade away. They don't work out what that's going to mean for us economically, but they're very confident about it strategically. Now, that's a big subject. I don't want to take it on in any detail, but I just do want to, as a sampler, so to speak, address one aspect of it. A lot of people are confident that China's demographics are going to somehow stop it in its tracks or even reverse it in a way that will restore America's strategic economic and strategic preponderance. You'll have gathered from the difference I just mentioned, 24 to 14%. That that's very unlikely. But it's also just worth, worth worth pointing out that although China's demographics are lousy, and its population is shrinking, it's going to shrink from 1.4 billion to 1.3 billion, according to the estimates of the experts, by 2050. And in 2050, America's population will still be will be about 438 million. So it's still going to have a population three times the size of America's. And that means that its economy is going to be bigger than America's, even if it's per capita productivity, is only one-third America's. And it's going to be a lot more than that. So, you know, we've just got to get rid of the idea that, that China's rise is somehow an aberration which is going to disappear. It's here to stay. And that is hard for us to accept. I think we've got to be we've got to look at ourselves when we're looking at this phenomenon because it does do something a bit deep for 200 years to be wealthy and strong meant to be western to put it slightly differently for 200 years to be wealthy and strong meant to be white and I still think one of our problems is we just don't quite handle thought that other countries, different from us, can do what we have done, that's what they're doing. So, Now I've gone on about this, about the the shift in distribution of wealth and power and what it means because it is the key to everything. Now of course there are lots of important day-to-day events. We've seen a few in the last few days in Bali, and I don't want to denigrate what happened actually in Bali. I think the somewhat improved diplomacy uh, of the new government and a very clear and self-conscious decision by Beijing, which dates back before the election, that they want to turn the knob down a bit or up, depending on which way you think of the knob going, um, has produced what I think is a significant change in the way the day-to-day relationship between Canberra and Beijing is managed. But we don't want to confuse that little surface ripple with the deep currents that we're talking about. Um, When wealth shifts, power shifts, when power shifts between states, the order that is the basis upon which they relate to one another changes. And that's why I, you know, that's why the the, the power shift we we have seen in Asia seems to me so certain to produce a fundamental shift in the way in which the region works. And the deep problem we've had with our relation in our relationship with China hasn't got to do with the fact that Scott Morrison wanted the wanted the UN to inquire into the into the. Um, Sources of the pandemic or we decided we didn't want Huawei to build our 5G or any one of the other things, some of them halfway sensible, some of them blatantly stupid that the previous government did in relation to China. It's much more fundamental than that. China, with its new power, seeks to become the dominant power in East Asia and the Western Pacific. We support America in trying to stop it. It's as simple as that. And that is, is—it's worth we making the point, a violation of China's conception of the foundations of our relationship. The modern relationship with China, the relationship which has seen you guys exporting a million tonnes of iron ore plus a day to China, is an understanding that John Howard reached with Jiang Zemin in 1996, after a very rocky start to the relationship after the Howard government won office in March of that year, in which Howard said, Zhang Zemin, and he sets this out quite clearly in his memoirs. We are a strong ally of the United States and we will remain a strong ally of the United States. But nothing we do as a US ally will be directed against China. And on that basis, Zhang Zemin said, "Hmm, all right, yeah, we can work with that. We don't care what else you do. You can go to war in the Middle East if you want to. But as long as it's not directed at us. And of course, what they see is since... The strategic rivalry between America and China became overt, and since Australia's muscular support for America became overt, is that that agreement's been violated. And nothing that happened in Bali has led us off that hook. A change in diplomatic temperature is not a change in strategic fundamentals. Not that it's not welcome for what it is, but we don't want to to imagine that we're suddenly out uh, out 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 of the woods. So, what kind of new order are we going to see emerge from the new distribution of wealth and power? And here, it is very important to be very clear-eyed. We don't need a conversation about what we want. That's easy. Well, at least it's easy for me. If you ask me what I want, I'd like America to remain the dominant power in the Western Pacific forever. Forever. Not because I don't think America ever gets anything wrong and not because there's not all sorts of things that happen in America that strike me as bizarre, crazy, and often just downright objectionable. It's just that I think it's better than the alternative. It's proved better than the alternative. I'm I'm with Albo on this. It's proved better than the alternative in the past. If we could have it, I'd be very happy to go with it in the future. But it's not a conversation about what we want. It's a conversation conversation about what we should prudently expect. And I think when we think about what kind of order should we expect to see emerge from the from the change in the distribution of wealth and power uh, it's something very different from what we've known uh, and thinking about those differences is really fundamental to think about how we should navigate them the first point to make is that i don't think we're heading for a new unipolar order run by the authoritarians a lot of the a lot of the conversation around this in America and in Australia and elsewhere, in Europe to a certain extent, sees the challenge that China is posing to the global order as comparable to the challenge that the Soviet Union posed during the Cold War. That is, there's our model, and if our model doesn't win, their model will win, they'll dominate the world the way we want to, but they'll dominate the world with their their model and we'll be forced to conform to it. Um, And of course, that drives a response that says, we must stop that. If the only alternative to the the old order is a new order that is dominated by the Communist Party of China, then it's worth bearing any burden and paying any price to stop it. Interesting question as to whether that, that would be the right response, by the way. But I don't think it's the right question. Because I think the chances of China emerging or even China and Russia as partners emerging as a global hegemon are virtually zero. There's two reasons to think that. The first is historical. Actually no country in history has ever ruled the world. A few have tried, including most recently the United States. It, it doesn't happen. It's The world is too big and too complex and too diverse. But in particular, and more specifically, it's much less likely now than it was for example in the latter phase of the 20th century after the Second World War when there were really only two superpowers. And if one of them had defeated the other, then the one that defeated, the other would end up ruling the world, or at least it would look like it. That's what happened at the end of the Cold War. But the fact is that this new distribution of wealth and power that's emerged from these extraordinary transformations have left a world with a very even distribution of wealth and power. There are lots of big and powerful states. There's China. There's America, which it's worth making the point. America's not going anywhere. It's still a huge and very powerful country. There's India. There's Europe. Well, Europe's a funny old place, but partly thanks to Vladimir Putin's relentless efforts, it does have a strategic identity and a strategic personality, and I think it's becoming stronger and more important. I think we'll see Europe as a major power at the global level, and there's still Russia. Now, the idea that China can dominate all of those—it's not going to happen. We are going to. What we're going to do is a multipolar global order. Now. And that's going to be, um, China is going to be one of the big poles in that multipolar global order, but there's not going to be, we're not, we don't face a, a, dominant, a dominance by, so to speak, the other side. Now, each of those great powers, and there may be some others, Indonesia for example, will seek to do as great powers always do, to build a sphere of influence of their own in their own backyard. Like that's one of the things they have to do in order to function. They have to dominate their own region, their own near abroad, as the Russians call it, in order to be able to function as a great power at the global level. And that's, that's what great powers do. That's what America has done. Uh, for example, the Monroe Doctrine in the Western Hemisphere. Um, but that's got very important implications regionally in Asia. Because the other fear we have is that Ch- what, what China will see, even if it doesn't end up dominating the world globally, it will end up dominating Asia. And I would say that's not going to happen either. And it's not going to happen primarily because of India. India is just going to be too big. It's already too big for China to dominate. And leaving Indonesia out of the picture for a moment, although it's very interesting what happens when you pull it in, but re- leaving it out, out of the picture at the moment, by far and away the most likely outcome, over the next few decades, is it we'll see in Asia, which has two preponderant great powers, each with their own sphere of influence. India is the preponderant power, the great power in South Asia and the Indian Ocean. China as the great power in East Asia and the Western Pacific. Those two spheres of influence will have a long and complicated boundary that starts in Myanmar and runs down through Thailand and, and Malaysia and Singapore and Indonesia, and Australia, and out to New Zealand. And I'll come back to this. It's this a very important feature of our future. We're going to sit on the boundary between those spheres of influence. But whatever else we're heading for, we're not heading for an Asia which is dominated by China. So chi- China will be balanced and, and its power mediated, and at some extent ameliorated, by the sheer fact of India's interest. And for those of us who sit on the boundary, that means we're not going to have one great power to deal with, but two. Now, in some ways that's worse, but in some ways it's a lot better. Because, of course, each of them is going to be trying to mediate the other's influence over us, and the others along the boundary. Because they want to keep the boundary where it is. This is very classic power political stuff. And then, of course, if Indonesia emerges as a great power, that complicates that picture in interesting ways, but ways actually, that I think, are beneficial for Australia. But one thing is absolutely clear, I think, I shouldn't say absolutely clear, but far and away the most likely outcome seems to me is that China will end up dominating East Asia and the Western Pacific. And that's because if you look at the other countries in that sphere, none of them are within KUI of China in terms of strategic weight. Japan, of course, is the most substantial. But Japan's GDP by 2030, again, according to Australian government estimates, is going to be one-seventh the size of China's. It's just not, it's not in that league. It's not actually going to be a great power in the Asian, East Asian strategic system, let alone the global strategic system. And the Southeast Asians are just too diverse. They, they, their geography is too diverse. Their interests are too diverse. We keep on talking about ASEAN centrality, but actually ASEAN's countries of Southeast Asia pull in lots of different directions. Ch- China is so much the most powerful country in that system uh, that I think its chances of being able to dominate it are very strong, huh. unless America stops it. And this, of course... Gets back to the question of whether our choice of 1941 is still relevant. So let me just spend a moment looking at that. Um, And just to reiterate, the the foundation of the strategic rivalry between America and China that we see today is their contest for which of them will be the primary power in East Asia and the Western Pacific. America has been the primary power in this part of the world, you could say since 1899, Battle of Manila Bay, certainly, you could say since 1945 with the surrender of the Japanese, you could say since the, the Americans and the Chinese did their deal and China, communist China stopped opposing American primacy for a while in 1972. But it's been, I think the most natural date is actually 1899. It's, it's been the primary military power, and maritime power in the Western Pacific for as long, longer than Australia's been here, in other words, as a unified country. But China is now determined to take its place. I do think that's not just one of Xi Jinping's one of the things on Xi Jinping's to do list. It is right at the heart of his conception of the rejuvenation of the Chinese people. He wants China to be what I think he's thought it's always was a great power, with all the attributes of a great power, including a sphere of influence in its near abroad. And it does seem to me that China has the capacity to do that because of the economic and military rate that it's acquired. It's got the will to do it. This is not just, as I say, not just one of the things on this to-do list. It's right at the heart of his vision. And when I say his, I don't really mean Xi Jinping. I mean the Chinese Communist Party. And I venture to say a very high proportion of the Chinese people. And together, the capacity and the will mean that they can accept, are willing to bear costs and risks in order to achieve that, which are much higher than the costs and risks that America is prepared to bear. And that makes me very pessimistic about America's capacity to sustain its position. Now, that's a really critical judgement for for an Australian to make because we're bet on America our whole, our whole policy, our whole approach to China's ambitions as the dominant power in East Asia and the Western Pacific is to assume that America can prevent it happening. When we talk about the rules-based order and so on, that's what we mean. We mean preserving US primacy. And we depend on America to do that. And we volunteer to help. And that's the deal, that's what Albo meant when he said we made our decision in 1941 and we're still with it. We relied on America in 1941 to deal with Japan and now we're going to rely on, on America uh, in 2022 in the years that followed to deal with China. And it's not 1941. So let me just explore that judgment a little more because it really is central to this. Um, look at what it costs America to sustain its position against China's challenge. And, of course, there's many many dimensions to this contest, diplomatic, economic, ideological to some extent, but it is most fundamentally a military contest. That's not to say I think it's necessarily going to be a war, but but the, 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 the way the contest is conducted has long since passed the point where the primary driver of both sides' positions is their capacity to demonstrate to the other their willingness and their capacity to go to war if that's what happens. This is very common in strategic affairs. It's not to say that either side wants to go to war. Of course they don't. They're not stupid. They want to achieve their objectives without going to war by persuading the other guy that they are willing to go to war, and therefore the other guy will back off in order to avoid going to war. This is this is actually what happened in July and August 1914. It's a very it's often a very common feature feature in history. Um, uh, but, uh, and, and, you know, Taiwan is the most likely focus for that contest, not the only one, I might say, but if we look at what's happening over Taiwan, it's worth bearing in mind if there's a war between America and China over Taiwan, it won't be about Taiwan, any more than the First World War was about the status of ethnic Serbs in the Austro Hungarian Empire. It was a war about the shape of the national order in Europe and which powers were going to be great powers and which powers weren't. Was Germany gonna be allowed to dominate? Was Russia gonna be stopped from from intruding further into into Europe and so on? Some things don't change in European strategic affairs. Um, Now the reason why um, I'm so pessimistic about America's capacity to prevail in that contest is that it has lost the military supremacy, the maritime supremacy, which has been the foundation of its dominant position in East Asia, to China over the last 25 years. Or rather, to be a bit more precise, it hasn't lost it to China. That is, it's not as though China is now as dominant in the Western Pacific as America used to be. It's not as though America used to be able to win a maritime war with China, hands down. Back when I was in the Defence Department, we looked at this quite carefully, as you might imagine, it was a very easy show. But what's happened since then, as the Chinese have invested massively and very cleverly from a force planning point of view in their air and maritime capabilities, is they've denied the United States the capacity to win a quick cheap victory in a war with China over Taiwan or any other issue, any other maritime issue in the Western Pacific. And, uh, And having lost that, the United States would have to invest massively when I say massively, I mean massively, to regain it. Uh, Partly, of course, because it's operating against very substantial inherent disadvantages. It's on the wrong side of the Pacific Ocean, for a start. And it's on the wrong side of the fight. It has to project power by sea towards China. All China has to do is to stop America projecting power by sea towards them. And the operational and, and... and technological balance in maritime warfare actually for 150 years has been overwhelmingly to the advantage of the strategic defensive against the strategic offensive. So America today is spending 3.8 percent of GDP on defense they'd have to spend I mean this is six percent maybe they would really have to spend big money and there's just no sign of America doing that and 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 that that raises the risks and raises the challenge to American primacy because this is about deterrent, so it gets a bit weird. The more confident the Chinese are that the Americans know they can't win a war, the more likely they are to risk one because the the more confident they are that America will back off and that will give China the victory they want without having to go to war. And so America's failure to respond to China's military challenge actually makes the risk of, if not a war, then a military confrontation in which China ends up victorious, makes that more likely. And although I'm pessimistic, I think the chances of a war over Taiwan are really quite high, I think the most likely outcome is that America will, in fact, back off. And that will be a very serious, I would say, in effect, I mean, one doesn't want to over-dramatise individual events, but I think that will be a bit the way the fall of Singapore was for the British, the end of America's position in Asia. Now, one of the reasons why I'm confident that America won't spend the money necessary to restore its deterrent position and if deterrence fails, won't be willing to go to war with China is that in the end, it's not worth it to America. The things that drive America to preserve its position in the Western Pacific. The thing that's underpinned the massive effort America has made for decades to maintain that position has been its concern that a country that dominates the Western Pacific will be in a position to go on and dominate Eurasia and will therefore be able to pose a threat to the United States, will be able to become that rule the world power that we talked about before. And if I'm right, and I'm pretty sure I am, but China's not going to be able to do that anyway because they're going to face other powers like India and Russia from Eurasia that China's going to be contained between East, within East Asia then the idea that China ends up dominating East Asia by itself that's just not such a big deal China's not going to be able to threaten the United States at home in the US homeland and that's the difference between this and the last Cold War because the Soviet Union if the Soviet Union had succeeded really would have dominated Eurasia, and would have been strong enough to threaten the United States, and would have been within reach of becoming the rule of the world power. China's not like that. And that means America doesn't have the kinds of motives that drove it to the extraordinary steps it took during the Cold War. Of course, that's not to say that America, or rather, the people in Washington who have most influence over these decisions don't want America to remain the dominant power. Being dominant is great, actually. People like it. it's just they don't want it enough, or at least the voters and taxpayers of America, and you might say the people who end up in the military, don't want it enough to bear the costs and risks. Um, and when when America's own security is, is not at stake. So, I think when we look at America's capacity to prevent China becoming the dominant power in East Asia and the Western Pacific, and I might say the capacity to stop India becoming the dominant power in South Asia and the Indian Ocean, we, we cannot presume on that. And, you know, you can make the detailed argument, but also just it's just step back and look at the big picture. How likely is it that America will sustain the dominance in Asia that it enjoyed when its GDP was half of the world's GDP as it was after 1945, when its GDP is not much more than half of China's alone. It just sort of defies the laws of strategic physics, if you know what I mean, Newtonian physics. And the problem is that there's no alternative model. The United States has failed to develop a different model for the kind of role it will play in Asia if it's not the dominant power. Brenda mentioned I wrote a book back in 2012 called the China choice, why America should share power, which was precisely about this, suggesting America won't be able to sustain dominance, so it therefore should try and negotiate some different kind of role in Asia. And, well, the book sold quite well, but only because people thought it was so weird that anyone should suggest that. I recommend it as a sort of a party trick. Go Go to a seminar room in any respectable American university or think tank or government department, and look them in the eye and say, America should treat China as an equal. You'll get looks of blank incomprehension. You'll get looks of anger and hostility. You'll get very few nodding heads. So, um, that, that means Australia's got a real problem. We're betting on America making this work. And if I'm right, then the chances of America making this work are very low. And so we have some very big choices to make, not the old choices of 1941, but new choices that unsentimentally free of any pangs as to our traditional links and kinship about the world we live in now and the world we're going to be living in in the next few years. This is very difficult for us. Because it means that Australia's future lies in an Asia which is going to be dominated in some complex way we can't yet understand by Asian powers, by China, by India, maybe by Indonesia. It's going to mean that for the first time since European settlement of this continent we're not going to be living in an Asia which is made safe for us by Anglo-Saxon power. It's the strangest feature of our history. And it's just a historical accident that ever since European settlement except for the months between August, between December 1941 and the Battle of Midway in June of 1942, every single day except for those months, the world's biggest economy, the world's dominant maritime power, the dominant strategic power in East Asia and the Western Pacific and the Indian Ocean for that matter has been first Britain and then America, our mates. And we think this is normal, we think, that's, of course, that's what... No, no, this is a complete historical accident. And it's a historical accident that's come to an end. So our task today is to try and work out, well, is not to try and sustain that old order, which the seismic shifts and distribution of wealth and power have undermined, but to try and work out how we live in this new order and how we shape that new order. And one of the problems we face is that by hanging on so tightly to the old order, we're foregoing the opportunity to shape the new one and we're foregoing the opportunity to take the steps we need to take to adapt ourselves to living in that new one, however it ends up. And I think partly that's because of timidity and lack of imagination, but I think it's also because of fear. I think Australians have become very frightened of living in that Asia of powerful states. We like Asia to be weak, and that's not the Asia we deal with anymore. And so we really do need to start getting over our fright and start exercising our imagination about how we make our way in an Asia without American support, without Anglo-Saxon support. And it will be different. We shouldn't kid ourselves that the Australia that makes its way in that Asia will be the same Australia that's lived fat and happy under Anglo-Saxon primacy for 230 something years. And people are very worried about that. People feel very threatened by the idea that we might have to change to adapt to Asia rather than making Asia change to adapt to what our political leaders so glibly refer to as our values. I don't denigrate values, I just think we've got to be very careful about how we use that concept. But I don't think we should be frightened of that change. It is worth bearing in mind that Australia is a less static society than we sometimes think. This was a society that believed that we could simply erase the first Australians and we've mostly changed and we understand that we need to change the way our society works. We were a society that believed that we could establish on this continent a racially exclusive society that excluded Asians. And we learnt that that was wrong and we changed, and changed fundamentally in a way which has huge implications. We were a society that believed that we could build a highly protected industrial economy and build our own cars and washing machines. And we learnt that that was wrong and we moved on. You know, we we, we have reimagined ourselves as a society but I mention those examples because I think the reimagination that we're going to have to make, because we can't dictate the terms, is going to be of comparable scale. That's not to say there aren't some things we're not going to change. But I think we should approach this process not by determining that nothing's going to change, but think to ourselves, okay, how do we need to adapt to live in this very different Asia? And the odd thing is that I think today's generation of Australians, certainly today's generation of Australian political leaders, is less conscious of that than some of their predecessors. I think, you know, if you think back to the to the era of Hawke and Keating, or even to the era of Menzies, maybe not Menzies himself so much, but Men- 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 Menzies... Um, Foreign Ministers like Casey and Hasluck, they understood this pretty well. So what should we do? Well, a few simple steps. Stop thinking that we should go to war with China to preserve the US-led order if the challenge comes over Taiwan, for example, and that does seem to be the accepted orthodoxy on both sides of politics in Canberra. Recognise that Asia will have a new order Recognise the primary role that India, China, and Indonesia will play in that order and start treating them as great powers and dealing with them as great powers and stop seeing India and Indonesia, for example, as just part of the answer to our China problem. They're great powers in their own right. Talk to others in Asia, particularly our Southeast Asian neighbours, about how we should collectively work in dealing with these great powers instead of just going up there and reading to them America's talking points, which I think is what we've been doing the last decade, and build defence forces that can defend Australia independently against an attack by a major Asian power. That's a subject for a whole different lecture. But I believe it can be done, and I believe it can be done for 3.5% of GDP. Now, these are big steps. This is big stuff. But it's worth bearing in mind that We've been here before, not actually as big. I think this is a bigger shift in Australia's international setting since European settlement. But we've been through two big transitions before that. The second one, the more recent one, was the extraordinary transition with the collapse of the European empires in Asia after the Second World War. Where Australia had to reimagine itself as a country in an Asia of independent states. Weak states, but independent states and the way in which we built that set of bilateral relationships in Asia, which has served us most of the time very well in a decade since. And that required a fundamental rethinking about our vision of Australia's place in the world, really the invention of Australian foreign policy for the first time. And the earlier time was the astonishing transformation that took place in Australia's view of itself in the world, around the time when Winston Churchill had his lunch with Sir William in the 1890s in federation, because federation was all sorts of things. I don't know it's a sensitive issue in WA. <laughs> but more than anything else, federation was an act of strategic policy. People like Alfred Deakin understood what Sir William Harcourt and Anthony Albanese don't. He understood how fast the distribution of wealth and power was shifting, and not just him, the whole generation who created federation because they realised that in Australia, in a world in which British power could no longer be depended on, needed to look after itself more and needed to federate in order to do so. So, we shouldn't look at what's happening at the moment and think, oh, wow, we just can't handle that, and just pretend that the choice that, Alfred, uh, that John Curtin made in 1941 is good enough for us. We should say, OK, we can do this sort of stuff. It's going to be difficult and demanding and scary, But I'll tell you, it's a lot better than pursuing a policy which will either see us supporting the United States in a war with China over Taiwan, which we won't win, and which will probably go nuclear, or being on the wrong side, watching America bug out, because in the end, the costs and risks aren't worth it to them. And we end up with a new order in Asia, which we've had no part in designing and have not prepared ourselves remotely Participated participate in. Thank you.
1: Thank, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Hugh. That was a real treat. You've uh, put down some really scary challenges, but also <laughs> giving us a pathway that we are up to it. And, and the contextual, the historical context is something oh. that I particularly appreciate. Given an amateur student of history myself. So we've got a few minutes. We're going to go a bit extra time, but I think it's bit. Oh, I'm it. sorry. Um, because we, I'm sure we've got a very engaged audience. So uh, put up your hand. I'll look at you. I saw that one first came up. Maybe that one. And, okay, we'll take those two, two. Is there another one in that area? Okay, we'll go with you in a second. So can I ask you to introduce yourself? And uh, if it has an affiliation, uh mention it. Thank you. Yep. I can probably be heard. No, because we're recording it. So
2: ah. uh, thank you very much. Uh, David Teer from Whadjuk Noongar land, living in Bassendine. Uh, beautiful talk. Thank you. Thank you. Loved it. And one of the lines that you said was, unless we stop it unless, you know, we help America stop it, okay? So I keep thinking back to after the fall of the Berlin Wall and one of the lines that speaks deeply to me was somebody somewhere said, the new world superpower is global public opinion. So I just want you, especially as a... A journalist of sorts, and and using the word a few times there in the speech about uh, hegemony. Yeah. Spake, take it from there. Thank you.
0: you, you OK, the yes, yes. Yes.
3: Hello, Hugh, and
4: Hello, thank jo. you for a wonderful speech. Right to see you again. Uh, I'm Joe Valentine, and I'm um, a member of the Independent Peaceful Australia Network, which next week is presenting an amazing report in Canberra, uh, along the very lines that you are suggesting, that we need to rethink. We need to move beyond 1941. I would like you to comment on the AUKUS agreement, and in particular the nuclear submarines, because this is backward thinking. This is taking us back, 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 relying on the United Kingdom and the United States. We need to be thinking very differently. Now, Malcolm Fraser, soon, uh, not long before he died, called the United States a dangerous ally, dangerous. We should be heeding his words. I'd like to recommend this book to people, as well as yours, of course, but this is Kevin Rudd talking about the avoidable war. We don't want to sleepwalk into war as you have suggested, but the avoidable war, this is a very interesting tome. Kevin Rudd probably knows China better than anybody else in Australia. And uh, Xi Jinping is playing the long game. He doesn't need to invade Taiwan right now and he won't do it until he's quite ready militarily to uh, vanquish the Americans. We do not want to be on the side of the Americans in a war. The nuclear submarines are taking us down a very dangerous path, I believe. And I'd like your comment on that, please.
0: Right. Thanks. Um, Two two really good questions. Look, I'm going to give you a gloomy answer. Because the trouble, the thought at at the end of the Cold War with the fall of the Berlin Wall one of the big thoughts of the 1990s was that somehow nation-states become less significant, that in a globalised market where everyone's moving everywhere, states just didn't matter that much to people anymore. And there was a very respectable line of, line of argument that said that um, that this is going to make old-fashioned strategic rivalry a nonsense because uh, it would get in the way of the market not to put too fine a point on it. And I'm going to allow myself to say I always thought that was wrong Uh, and so so it has proved. One of the things that's very striking about the picture I've painted is how old-fashioned this is. I mean, it really is Athens and Sparta and Rome and Carthage and the Spanish Empire versus Elizabethan England and all of that. The the scary thing is how relevant history is to us. And one of the reasons for that is that it transpires that far from being liberated from our national alignments, public opinions still remain very firmly fixed on their national identity. Certainly I think that's true in China. It's certainly true in America. It's certainly true in Australia. And elsewhere, I mean, I could go on, Britain and Brexit, for example. So I, I, I the, the bad news is I don't think global opinion, public opinion is gonna fix this problem. It's gonna rely on national leaders to make rational and responsible decisions. That's not a reassuring answer. <laughs> Which of course brings me to Joe's question. Don't get me started on AUKUS. I mean but I will. <laughs> um, I mean I can't resist starting by saying that to hear an Australian Prime Minister stand up and describe Britain as a forever ally. I mean did he remember nineteen forty one? I mean I mean really? I mean that, that that that's how recidivist we have become. We're not just hanging on to America, we're hang on to Britain. And Boris Johnson's Britain. Now, there are two two ways to criticise. I I think AUKUS is really dumb. And I think it's really dumb for two quite separate reasons. One one is that I think nuclear-powered submarines are just a dumb capability decision for a thousand reasons that I could spend a lot of time talking about, but I won't. But I also think it's dumb strategically because it's one of the things we've done, but one of the most important things we've done, to signal to everyone to the Americans, to the Chinese, to our neighbours, and in a sense to ourselves, perhaps most importantly, that we do see, that we do think it's right for America, if necessary, to go to war with China to preserve US primacy, that it's that important, Um, and that if America does that, we'll support them. Uh, I mean, I think AUKUS is a very stark declaration of that, and I just think that's dumb because I don't think it's a war we're going to win. And, separate argument, I think it's a war that's very likely to go nuclear. But one of the differences between me and other analysts of this situation is that I think we take far too much reassurance from the fact that the Cold War never turned into a nuclear exchange. And I think for various sort of semi-technical reasons, the the nuclear threshold between America and China in a war, for example, over Taiwan is both much lower and also much less clear than was nuclear threshold in the Cold War. And so I, I, I think sending that signal is a very dumb thing to do and therefore I think AUKUS is a very dumb thing to do. I don't share, I mean, I share a lot of, very high regard for the way Malcolm Fraser thought these issues through. Actually, not just in retirement, in government, he was a very, always a very interesting strategic thinker, if not always, I think, correct on things, but he was always had good strategic instincts. Uh, I, don't, I didn't share his, his blanket view that America was always a dangerous ally, but I do think it's become a very dangerous ally for us now. And I think if Malcolm was still with us, it would be both instructive and enjoyable to hear what he'd have to say. As 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 for Kevin's book, and, you know, we're kind of competitors in this space, so you'll forgive me. Um, the good news about Kevin's book, and the book actually picks up on stuff that he's been saying for 10 years, and there's nothing wrong with that. I've been saying the same thing for 10 years as well. Um, But the good news is that he does recognise the risk of war and he recognises the need to do something to avoid it. The bad news is that I think he very significantly underestimates the scale of the compromises America will have to make to do it. And he does that, I think, because he is, after all, a very intimate participant in the US debate. And it's always seemed to me that he doesn't want... I'm not saying this is conscious, But he wants to persuade Americans that they can make the compromises necessary to reduce the risk of war with China without really giving away anything they value. And I think that's that's wrong. That's the difference between him and me. When I stood up in all those seminars and said to Americans they needed to treat China as an equal, I got absolutely nowhere. And no one's ever appointed me a president of the Asia Society, I'll tell you that for (laughs) nothing. Whereas Kevin has told them And, and, you know, it's a a good message. You guys are going to have to do a deal with China. But to say, and what you have to do is, for example, reach, as he says in the book, you know, reach an agreement that we won't, neither of us will do anything naughty over Taiwan. China wants America to think it's going to do something naughty over Taiwan. And America wants China to think that. I mean, it's just, I think it's, so I think it's, it's understandably understandable from a career perspective. Is that too unkind? but I think it's very naive strategically. Thank you. I'll take a couple of questions here. Compare that to what Kevin said about my latest quarterly essay. I've just been very polite.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You make my heart rate go up, but that's good. (laughs)
3: Hi. Thanks so much for your talk. It was great. Um, I agree we can't look at it as if we're going to win a war, and I'd just like to bypass that for a second. Um, I think it's more like a strange long game that we're going to be playing. Um, I wanted to focus on the question of the domestic population and the character of it. I mean, you know, ever since maybe the Nixon or Keating, let's say, pivot, or you can... We're never around there. It doesn't really matter. You know, there's this perennial perennial philosophy, perennial idea from Plato, you know, that if you you break your uh, country up into all these sorts of different groups, what are you going to have? And what's your defence going to be like against other countries, right? So, like, I look at the audience today, and it's no offence, but this is the reality, right? I'm a very westernised guy, but how many other, you know, ethnic people are here? But I recognise the problem. I really recognise the problem. Um, And it's no secret we're diluting the country. It's no secret we're diluting these western ideals. Um, but yet we are, we are, we are filling the country in with people who don't agree with these ideals. So when we really get into a problem, there's a real inherent danger that we're not going to be able to keep these Western ideals alive. Nor are we going, nor are we going to be actually, nor are we going to be able to even get the country behind a war when the war's actually going to matter. I'm not talking about the current U.S. Tri- yeah. Well, the, the question is that, I mean. <laughs> I mean, I think it's all a question. I mean, do we need a radical turn, is what I'm saying. Do we need a radical turn, or do we just keep going down this path? Um, like, how can a nation divided stand? Is, like, I, I don't think anyone here is, maybe they are, but I don't think anyone here, like, is misunderstanding what's going on in this country. This country in 30 years is not going to be, you know, a Western country with people with Western ideals. You know, I come from a generation of it, it's very worrying. It's very worrying because I recognize the geopolitical dangers and they are, the, the, it's never been worse. It's never been worse, you know, and we are the tip of the spear. Bannon said that, but everyone said that. We are the tip of the spear. Um, I wonder what you have to say about that.
5: Okay. Yep. Sorry, you didn't introduce yourself. Huh?
3: My name is Sahil Singh Panag. Thank you. Thank you. I'll
1: let you chew on that and I'll heal for a little while. I'll come to the second question.
3: Uh, Thanks for that. Great, great talk. Really interesting. My name is Michael Thomas. No worries. Um, My question, I'm just just thinking it back to, you know, your talk about national identity and some of the proxy wars we've seen in Vietnam, Afghanistan and most recently Ukraine and how they've been supported by, you know, technology and, and weapons from other main powers, do you think that will have a bearing on what may play out in Taiwan, whereas it's less of a direct confrontation between US and China? And how, as well, (coughs) does uh, Taiwan's concentration of chip manufacturing play into the strategic importance of that? Mm. Yeah. Good.
6: Hugh, can you hear me? Hello, my my name is Shamit Sagar, I'm the director of the Public Policy Institute at UWA. Nice to meet you, and and thank you for the talk, we all enjoyed it thoroughly. Can I just take the question, last one, but one, and adapt it slightly? Your your proposition is, we're relying upon our mates, kith and kinship, if I reduce it down to a sentence, and I can see that entirely, and don't disagree with it. But the striking thing about Australia, in common with these mates, the UK and the United States, as the question earlier on was saying, they're changing these are massive countries of migration for better or worse they have filled labor shortages by filling themselves up with people from other parts of the world so they've changed who they are in other words it changes your construct of us and it's happening in Australia it's yes. probably just 20 or yes. 30 yep. years yep. behind yep. and so I think it's probably a factor that's in favor of your argument it's a, it's an engine that will drive this kind of reassessment but I have got that right. I want to get your sense of whether Australia has that capability of turning this into a national conversation, yes. which you are advocating, and using yes. this as a tool to do that.
0: Yeah. yeah, no, really, really good question. So let me actually bracket your question and your question together because they really come, I think, at the same issue from different directions. Uh, the lesson of history seems to be that fears about national cohesion tend to be exaggerated. If you, look at, if you look at history, what happens when countries are attacked is that they pull together terrifyingly. Uh, that's why wars, particularly wars between great powers, are so big and long and bloody. Um, and so when I look at Australia's situation, I don't fear that, that our increasing ethnic diversity weakens our national will, um, but I do think it changes the framework within which we think about the kind of country we are. And I don't think that's a bad thing. In fact, I think it's highly adaptive, that we're going to live... we, We are going to be a part of a strategic system which is dominated by China, India and maybe Indonesia. And I don't think the fact that we have as part of our demographic makeup, large numbers of people from China and India and countries around them is a disadvantage. I think it's an advantage. I mean, in particular, to think of the... You know, one of the dangers we face as we deal with China is that people start to think that the one million-plus Australians of Chinese heritage are a liability. No, <laughs> no. They're an asset. We need them. But the corollary of that is that um, what I might call, if you'll forgive me putting it this way, my Australia, Anglo-Saxon Australia, the Australia of my father and grandfather, that's, that's not going to be there. But that's a good thing. That's what I mean. We, we, we're going to change. We shouldn't be frightened about that. And the challenge for us, And I'm not saying it's easy, but the challenge for us is to build a multicultural society in which people from all of these different parts of the world feel sufficient stake to do what's required to defend it if that's what we end up doing. And I don't... You know, the reason I've written a book on how you defend Australia is precisely I don't think that's something we can rule out. And and so when... Uh, the conventional-powered submarines that I hope we will buy instead of the nuclear-powered submarines put to sea, I'll expect they'll have a very complex multi-ethnic crew. And that I, I'm, I'm not worried about that. I mean, wh- one of the examples of that, perhaps the foremost example, well, you can think of two strong examples. One is America, which in its day uh, has been, A, very ethnically diverse and very powerful militarily, And although people worried, old Anglo-Saxon Americans worried, that the immensely diverse America that emerged from the mass immigration of the 19th century would be weakened, that's not what the Japanese and the Germans discovered (laughs) when they faced American forces in the Second World War. Um, And likewise, the Soviet Union, very complex multi-ethnic empire, but the Red Army was still something it was not so sure about today, was something truly formidable. Um, look, ex- exactly. I mean, if what we think our task is, is to defend, again, my, my father's or my grandfather's Australia, then, <laughs> then we're kidding ourselves. That's not going to happen. And the fact that we're going to have to evolve as society in all sorts of ways in order to work better in this very different Asia is something I think we just have to, A, A, accept, but also B, welcome. Because we're already welcoming all these people to society. They're part of the society. We abandoned the idea that we could have a racially exclusive society back somewhere in the middle of the 1960s. Having got rid of that, we now have to work that through. But that does... One of the ways in which Australian public discourse about this, the the national conversation about this, has gone off the rails is that it does, it does sort of drag us back to what I might call a very Anglo-Saxon vision of what Australia is. I mean, I, I've said something slightly offhand and perhaps insufficiently serious about values earlier. And I say, I don't say that values aren't a part of the picture. But when I hear Australian political leaders saying, we will not compromise our values, I ask, what do they mean? What, what does that mean? Because if, and it's important to answer the question, because if we're going to go to war with China or over Taiwan... On defense of our values we better know what the hell it is we're doing and and i don't i mean don't laugh this is this is not a remote possibility it's a very real possibility um you know you ask the prime minister so anyway don't get me stuck but so i mean all i'm saying is absolutely and the idea that there is a kind of a you're exactly right The the the, the, the the sort of Anglo-Saxon myth, the Anglo-Sphere idea, is not just evaporated in Australia. It's evaporated in Britain. You know, when the when the Prime Minister of of, of Britain and and his predecessor and his successor, for that matter, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, are the two guys we've seen recently. This this is not my grandfather's Britain, and Britain's a better place for it. Although, actually. No, that was perhaps a poor example.
1: (laughs) Sorry. Semiconductor.
0: Yeah. Semiconductors in Taiwan. Look, Um, I think I I can understand why people watching Ukraine doing what it's doing uh, think, oh, that solved that problem. We just have to do for the Taiwanese what we're doing for the Ukrainians. And so if you're Biden, you think we don't have to fight World War Three for Ukraine because the Ukrainians can look after themselves. We don't have to fight World War Three for Taiwan because the Taiwanese can look after themselves. There's a couple of points to make. The first is no one has any idea what the hell has happened in Ukraine. Why did the Russians do so badly? And why have the Ukrainians done so well? Now, I'm not saying they haven't, but I'm when I see something... It, I mean, it is... It, it, People, of course, will always come out and say, oh, I can explain that, but no, they can't. It's, it's, it's just inexplicable. Eventually, we'll understand when we get into the history, but, but at the moment, one just has to be constructively agnostic about a truly remarkable thing. And of course, we haven't seen the end of the story. Always worth bearing in mind, Russians have a strong tradition of starting badly and finishing strongly. In uh, September 1812, Napoleon was in Moscow. Before the end of 1814, the Russians were in Paris. Uh in, uh in November or early December 1941 they were on the outskirts of the Germans were on the outskirts of Moscow and could see the towers of the Kremlin and in May 1945 the Red Army rolled in against the Wehrmacht who are really good I mean good technically they were really good and the and the, and the Russians outfought them. them um, so I, certainly the Russians have had a very bad year but I very careful of the Russians. So, Taiwan is not the same. Apart from anything else, it doesn't have any land borders. Um, and so it's very hard to resupply. Um, a separate point, I think a Chinese military action against Taiwan would be much more likely to be a blockade than an invasion. Um, uh, and I think, the, um, I think the capacity of the West, America, and its mates to resupply the Taiwanese would be virtually zero. Um, and uh, the other thing is, I think that the the Chinese are much, 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 much better prepared for this operation than the Russians were. One of one of the less mysterious parts of the mystery of what's happened since February is that the Russians appear to have planned for one operation and then launched something completely different. Um, they planned for doing what they're doing now, and then they launched a full-scale invasion heading for Kiev and trying to destroy. Ukraine as, an, as a nation state. And I think it's, it's ne- they've never got their equilibrium, their operational equilibrium back from that mistake. As for TSMC and all of that, look, um, of course, it's worth bearing in mind, a US-China war over Taiwan would stop the global economy dead, including the West Australian economy, dead. Uh, I mean, the iron ore would just stop. And, of course, the flow of chips would stop. I mean it would make what happened with covid look like a, uh, you know, minor minor hiccup. Um, but I don't think in the long term the uh, well obviously China requiring the the expertise of TSMC and its colleagues at the big uh, Taiwanese chip manufacturing company would be a bit of a boost to China's um, chip production but the Chinese are going to get there anyway. I mean not this year or next year, but 10 years from now, the Chinese, you know, this is, this is one of the reasons why I think what America's done is dumb. They've just encouraged the Chinese to work harder. And, you know, in the grand sweep of history, America's not going to go to war with China over TSMC. If they go to war with China, it'll be over because they decide they want to try and preserve their leadership in East Asia against the factors that I've argued for.
1: Thank you. So I've gone against my rules, uh, but because it's Christmas, I make an exception... <laughs> Um, so I'm going to take two final questions. I've got one here. People had an arm. You had your arm. I'll be generous. I'll be a third question. <laughs> and please make it really short. Uh, no and less more question, less comment. And 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 to me. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks.
7: Thank you very much. Here, uh, Savina Yasmin from AIIA. Uh, your whole presentation, wonderful. It talks about the rise and fall of powers and how the balances change and where we need to place ourselves. And you talk about China, India, Indonesia, but Australia, at least to me, other than talking about a demographic change, uh, the way it sounds to me is that Australia is going to stay where it is and everything else will change. Do you envision at any stage? Australia rising, and so it becomes part of the larger picture.
8: Thank you. (coughs) Thank you. I enjoyed your your presentation very much too. And I also agree with with your view about the blockade being the tactic that might be used against Taiwan. But that's in the context of my question. My question is, can you reflect on our attitude to China in the terms of the economic differences economic you know, uh, uh, growth if you like between the united states and china and, and that relativity ab- around the world as when how much that's influencing australian public view and journalist views that really it's about an authoritarian autonomous country versus that of democracy. Even Joe Biden has said, this is a battle between democracy and autocracy. I worry about that. I prefer to be uh, uh, democracy and understanding and then negotiate our way through. I I, I appreciate your reflection.
7: Hi there. How do the um, kind of impacts of climate change uh, play into this in terms of mass migration, you know, yeah. um, economic shortages, resource shortages, yeah. stuff like really, that.
0: Really, really
1: good it. question. Thank you. Just to be fair, this person put up your
5: hand. And <laughs> 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 so. okay. Hello, everyone. My name is Joseph. Uh, just quickly, I have two questions. In terms of history, there's a lot of talk, especially after World War II, about appeasement. So in in your argument I found it very good, but do you reckon what would be the likelihood in some scenario where that would be strong enough to push everyone's will to get involved, especially, yep. I mean, we talked about uh, this whole idea of you know autocracy yeah. versus democracy and how that can be dangerous. Yep. Uh, but on the other hand, there's an appeasement perhaps that could be considered because of World War II. Yeah. A- and my other question, which is very brief, is we have a currently like an international order we have like international law with certain rules and although a lot of the time they get ignored or bypassed there are some things that come all the way from uh the united nations that work in the background i don't know what a good example would be like maybe uh some stuff that ilo does or yep. the fao yep. uh, do you reckon this would be affected with all these changes do you have any comments on that yeah
0: okay. thank okay. you yeah so really really good set of questions
1: your challenge is to answer very quickly thank You.
0: Okay, this is sort of like speed dating. Isn't it? Um, <laughs> look, Samina, so, I mean, really good question. My simple, brutal answer is demographics. That is, um, you know, Australia, unless we do something really spectacular with our immigration program, the way America did in the 19th century, we're, we're simply not going to have the population to build the economic weight to be a major power in an Asia in which the major powers look as big as the major powers do. Um, If we play our cards right, we can be a middle power, and a middle power is not nothing. Um, And one slightly sloganeering way of describing our objective should be to make sure that we do have both the diplomatic and the strategic weight of a middle power in this Asian century. Um, But we're not going to be able to rely on our demography to do it we'll have to have to rely on our brains and our imagination and all of that sort of stuff what Kevin Rudd called no what Gareth Evans called activist middle power diplomacy Um, look I I think it's wrong to frame the contest as a contest between authoritarianism and democracy because, I, because when people frame it that way, the way Biden does, as you mentioned, the thought there is that if the Chinese win, you know, he said in his first State of the Union address, this is a battle for the, for the, for the 21st century. The thought there was that if America doesn't succeed in preventing China becoming the dominant power in East Asia and the Western Pacific, then China will dominate the world and the whole, turn the whole world authoritarian. Now, for the reasons I spelled out in my talk, I just don't think that's gonna happen. Because China is not going to be dominant, strong enough to dominate the world. It's not going to be the way the Soviet Union might have done it if the Soviet Union had made the Cold War work for it. Um, China will remain authoritarian for as far ahead as we can see, and when they stop being authoritarian, that'll be, if I can put it this way, China's business. But, a, a, and there are threats to democracy, but give me a break, they don't come from the Chinese Communist Party. <laughs> I mean, we know where they come from. Mar-a-lago Communist Party. Uh, so, I mean, I'm being a bit flippant. But actually, it's a pretty important, pretty important question. Um, and and you know, being a bit more mature about that, uh, I mean, we have, we have in the West a, what seems to be a deep problem in the quality of political leadership. Now, it's always fashionable and understandable to denigrate one's present political leaders and to idolise their predecessors. But I tell you, if you really wanted to press yourself, go back and read the stuff that Alfred Deacon was writing 120 years ago. And you think, this was a different kind of person, completely different calibre of person. Or for that matter, (laughs) read what Winston Churchill was writing. It's a different point. Anyway, so I I don't think what's at stake here is authoritarianism versus democracy. It will be Australia's problem and Australia's mistake if we don't manage to sustain democracy. For example here in Australia and we need to think very carefully about what we should be doing here rather than worrying about what the Chinese might do for us climate change see one of my problems in life is that we have two major catastrophic you know sort of unimaginable crises looming over us and I've made a profession thinking about one of them a long time ago I mean, maybe 15 years ago, Ross Garno wrote a report. Oh, no, because we wrote it for Rudd, I think. Anyway, long time ago. Kevin, long time ago for you, not so long for me. Kevin, uh, Ross Garno, who was one of my heroes, um, wrote a report on climate change in which he said, and this is not a quote, and it's a pretty close paraphrase, that it, it may be that climate change as an issue is just too big and too complicated. It's too long-term. The implications are too vast. The challenges to how we adapt are too fundamental, and that our political system just won't be able to handle it. He, he was absolutely right about that. That's exactly what 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 happened in Australia, and interestingly, it hasn't happened elsewhere. It didn't happen in Britain, for example. I mean, I'm not saying they've done enough, but they've done more than we've done. Um, uh, and I and I wrote about the same time. I quoted that and said, I think the same might well be true about how we respond to the rise of China. It's the same kind of problem. Um, the, the, the challenge we have is that sometimes in debates about this, people say, look, all of this stuff that I'm talking about doesn't really matter because what about climate change? To which I say, there's no law that says that your house can't be both burnt down and demolished, demolished by an earthquake at the same time. Uh, we, we, you know, we are facing two disasters. And you know, global warming is terrible, but so is nuclear war. And the, you know, the, I mean, the, you know, one of my points here is that the risk of a nuclear war between America and China is actually quite high. And the last point I would make is that, and this is pretty obvious, but still very important, that if if we're to deal effectively with global warming, then. Well, I'll put it the other way. We cannot deal effectively with global warming unless the US and China are really working well together. And the lesson of history is that once strategic rivalry comes into the picture, cooperation and everything else goes out the window. And that is exactly what's happened. That is a very unreassuring answer to your question, but it's a very good point to raise. Appeasement. I mean, it's a really important point because what I'm saying... Is that instead of standing up to China, we should accommodate it. We should appease it. And what we all think of as the lesson of history is it should never accommodate a rising power. The only way to respond to a rising power is to push back relentlessly, keep it in its box, not allow any adjustment to the international order. And that. That appears to be the lesson of what went wrong in 1939 and what led to the Second World War. And that looms very large in our strategic imagination. A lot of people, including a lot of public servants and a lot of ministers of the Crown, don't know much strategic history, but they know about that. And I'm not saying it's an analogy one should dismiss, but it, it's a useful guide to what we should do now to the extent that China, under the CCP, is just like Nazi Germany. And, uh, I, you know, the, the, the CCP, if I may use this technical expression, are a pack of shits. But they're not the Nazi Party. I mean, they're really not. And there's other historical analogies. One of them is 1914, which I touched on before. Now, by the end of, no, the, end of the Second World War, which was a very bad day in the office, nobody thought the war was should not have been fought the people who fought the second world war the people who suffered the people who lost family the people who got their houses bombed nobody thought that that was the wrong war to fight because nazism really was worth a terrible war to stop but in 1919 everybody thought that the first world war had been a mistake and the reason they thought it was a mistake was that people in august 1914 People in Britain, for example, and people in Australia thought that it was worth fighting a war with Germany to stop Germany becoming the dominant power in Europe. And by the end of the war, they thought, it wasn't worth it. There must have been some other way of dealing with Germany's challenge to the European order than fighting that terrible war. And the one way of thinking about our, our challenge is, well, is this 1938 or is this 1914? And it depends where... This is a very oversimplified way of making the point. But it depends whether you think that the CCP today is more like Wilhelmine Germany or Nazi Germany. Well, Wilhelmine Germany actually was pretty weird. Um, and I wouldn't want to make a very close analogy. I wouldn't, I'm not saying that the CCP are like Wilhelmine Germany. But I do think, you know, the, the idea that it's worth fighting any war, no matter how bad, to resist any change in the international system to accommodate the rising ambitions of a rising power is wrong. And, you know, a, piece, mm-hmm. the, the melodramatic way of putting it is, peace is of value too. And you know, we've got to be very careful about launching into wars that might turn into nuclear wars. That's, that's, a, that's a great that's a good great note to, to end. To on. end,
6: okay. uh, to end in. <laughs>
1: please, please just stay here. Can I invite uh, Robin, a member of our committee, to um, express the vote of thanks, please?
7: Thank you. Thank you so much, Hugh. I don't know what I did to Grania in a post-life, past life, but to ask a former American diplomat to give the vote of thanks tonight. (laughs) And I was thinking, the only thing that could be worse, I could be a former British diplomat. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes vote of thanks, people get up and they try to summarize everything that the speaker has said and make the salient points again. I'm not a total idiot, and um, we don't have until tomorrow. So I'm just here to say thank you so much, Professor White. We really appreciate your being here, and we appreciate the way you've made us all think, even Americans, who are now Australians as well. (laughs) And and also, I really want to thank the audience. Um, I thought the questions were fabulous, and um, uh, it just shows what... A breadth of interest and thought leadership we have here in Western Australia. So if you're not a member of the Australian Institute of International (laughs) Affairs, tonight is what we're all about, and you really should join and take um, a lot of, engage actively. Because the other great thing, I mean, maybe from where you're sitting, sir, it doesn't look like a diverse audience, but from down here, it's a very diverse audience, both in terms of age and backgrounds. And I think, in terms of, you know, we're not all students, we're not all retired diplomats, we're not all academics. So um, I think it's a great group, and I enjoy, I really encourage people to join and, and get actively involved. So thank you so much. Thanks very much to the team who organized. It's, it's not easy to pull these things off. And um, Professor White, most of all, thanks to you. And we give you something to fits in your suit.